This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's about bringing a diversity of perspective to the table because that's going to ensure you reach a better outcome, which is more likely to succeed. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. I am thrilled to welcome Christy Rogers to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast today. Christy is managing partner and co-founder of Principle to Principle. Today, we're in for a treat as we talk with Christy, who has 25 years of experience in executive level problem solving, corporate leadership, risk management, and crisis communications, and has done so in all sorts of different corners of the world. So welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It's such a pleasure to be here and speaking with you again. So to get us started, I'd love to learn more about what brought you into the world of national security. Uh, problems. <laughs> so, <laughs> no shortage of them. Yeah, I, honestly, my mom would joke when I was growing up and she would say, you know, Chrissy, you never ran away from a problem or a challenge. You ran to them. And so, I mean, I actually think that's, that's a kind of a lame answer, but it's pretty accurate. I was always interested in international foreign policy affairs. I had worked in politics, economic development, but every time I was, you know, in whatever job, there seemed to be a crisis. And it was a crisis either when I was working for a chamber of commerce back in Michigan, and, you know, we all sort of had to rise around and rally around it, or even, you know, politics, which of course, there are a lot of crises. And I came to Washington, D.C., and honestly, to pursue whatever I could in the foreign policy, national security space. And I was looking at going back to school and getting a degree when I had a couple of different opportunities fall in my lap. When did you come to D.C.? This was in 2001. Yeah. Okay. So we have a big (laughs) geopolitical shift happening at that moment, too. Well, so when I came to D.C., right, and I was looking for, I mean, I had a job, but I was looking for things to do to get my feet wet in the national security foreign policy space. And 9-11 happened. And I had some colleagues and some friends who said, hey, Christy, you actually have a really interesting crisis response background. We could really use your help inside the government. And I said, you know, what the heck? Why not? So that started my career inside the federal government. And I started initially working for Department of Transportation, specifically with the Federal Transit Administration, working with New York City's Metropolitan Transit Authority after 9-11. Holy moly, that's a big account. Yeah, that was a doozy. And then quickly thereafter, I got a call. I used to say my bat phone would ring because I couldn't explain it any other way. From folks at Department of Defense. And it was shortly after we went in to Iraq in 2003. And they said, hey, you have some really interesting experience on disaster response, internal and external crisis communications. Would you be willing to go over there? And then after that, then I went to Department of Homeland Security. So it's, it's always sort of been in that space. I'm now co-chair of the Women Foreign Policy Group Board in D.C. I'm on the Board of Business Executives for National Security. I love it. But there are no shortage of challenges, Kathleen, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I, I was still in school, but I, you know, I was getting 
my degrees and I was security studies. And I was like, we're going to work our way out of a job. You know, it's end of the Cold War, end of history. It's, it, oh you know, I was not right about that one. <laughs> So you went from DOD to Homeland Security, and then you left government, but decided to continue in the national security space. Is that because of the particular problem set that keeps drawing you, or? You know, I, I do think along the way, working with New York City's Metropolitan Transit Authority and Department of Transportation after 9-11, and then DOD in Iraq, and then Department of Homeland Security with Hurricane Katrina, the bird flu, and I mean, I was up to my eyeballs and all that. It gave me an interesting perspective, an interesting skill set. I had come across several different companies that were actually working with the Department of Homeland Security and actually when I was also in Iraq that were on the ground because I used to say, I mean, this was a very interesting war. Soldiers fought on the same battlefield as contractors were trying to rebuild the country simultaneously. And so I actually came across a lot of companies that were doing some very interesting work. Same thing with DHS. And so I actually had an opportunity. I was approached by one company to set up their U.S. office. And they were a British-owned company uh, headquartered in London. And so I did. I thought they were, had a very interesting risk mitigation model and, and risk model just writ large and security model. And so I did and quickly saw an opportunity and I turned that into a wholly owned subsidiary with just under about a thousand people in about five years. That's incredible growth. We grew really fast. <laughs> I'm not certain I would recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that must have been pretty wild. <laughs> but I will tell you, I learned a ton again, constantly learning, but it was a phenomenal experience. And some of the work we did for the U.S. government, I wouldn't trade the experience and our outcomes for anything. Yeah. So your bat phone rings and it's a duty and they need help on the ground in Iraq. So how did that happen? Was it before the invasion and you were part of the, the run up or was it post invasion? We, we see the mess that's on the ground and we need we need help. How did that transpire? Has, it was set the scene for us. It was post inv invasion. I was supposed to hit the ground in the summer. The unfortunate thing is where we were supposed to live kept getting blown up. So my arrival on the ground kept getting pushed off. But it was interesting because it was not a phone call I expected. I mean, I'm literally sitting in my office in the Department of Transportation and I get this phone call saying, hey, we have an interesting proposition for you. Would you like to go over to Iraq and spend maybe just about a year? I'm like, and is that a wrong number? You know, is that, <laughs> do you have the right person? But I was so intrigued and I felt like many of us did after 9-11, whatever we can do, however our skill set can be used, put it to use. Let's do it. So I was single. I didn't have family or a dog or a cat that I had to worry about taking care of home. So I said, you know, I've always wanted to do something overseas and here's my opportunity, even if it's a bit crazy. I did dread the phone call to my mom. I will tell you that much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So you get there in the summer of 2003. Were you based out of Baghdad? Yeah. So I was based out of Baghdad. I was attached to the strategic communications team and to Ambassador Bremer. And we ended up organizing the office in a way where everybody that was a press person would have a different sort of portfolio. Like somebody had Department of DOD, uh, Department of Defense, somebody had Health Ministry, and we kind of broke it up that way. And they would just track what was happening, good and bad. I typically got flagged for the things that were going awry and called special projects. <laughs> so... I also traveled. So I did a lot of the advance work. Advance I use lightly, but I traveled 
prior to Ambassador Bremer traveling to an area, and then also traveled a lot to the special project areas <laughs> just to see what was going on. So I, I literally have been to every province in Iraq, except for Fallujah. I kept getting turned around on my way to Fallujah. What were your impressions and takeaways of the country at that time, especially since you, you saw just about all of it? In the, sort of the early days, I, we kind of traveled freely, right? You know, late 03, if we wanted to go to a restaurant in Baghdad, a couple of us, we would just go hop in a car and go to a restaurant in Baghdad, right? I mean, it was fine. I would say after Christmas 2003, going into 2004, it started to shift a little bit, just getting a little bit more violent. The Iraqis initially were extraordinarily welcoming, friendly. I mean, we had hundreds, thousands of Iraqis lined up outside all of our gates looking for jobs, looking for work, wanting to help the Americans. And while I was there over the course of just under a year, that diminished dramatically. And it was very unfortunate. You know, and I remember after a massive terrorist attack at Assassin's Gate, you know, of, of all places, where it was just hideous on how many people lost their lives, and mainly Iraqis, right, that were trying to get inside to work for us. One of the Christian Iraqis came up to me that ended up getting through the gate and had said to us, and she literally grabbed me by both shoulders, and she said, you Americans have to respond to this or we won't respect you anymore. And I just looked at her and her, her name was Najid. And I said, Najid, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And she said, I mean, she actually said, you need to find them and you need to hang them from the square. She said, that's what we understand. I kind of took a step back and she was a Christian too, right? Yeah. So there are not many Christians in, in, in Iraq, but it was, it left such an impression that oh my goodness, there is such a cultural gap, you know, at the very basic level of how they just viewed our role, how they viewed sort of an eye for an eye respect. That set me back a little bit. But we worked with some, we worked with youth and sports, Department of Defense, Department of Interior. I spent a ton of time in clinics and hospitals all over. And for, I would say for the vast majority of it, the Iraqis were exceptionally welcoming, friendly wanted to learn, wanted to grow. They felt like they were stuck back in time with what Saddam would not allow them to see or have. And we started an international press center and they didn't even know. I mean, it was so funny trying to teach them how to search the internet. Reporters had no clue what the internet was, you know, and trying to say, well, if you just Google and they would look at you like, I don't understand. I mean, they were so cut off from a lot of technological advances and education that they were hoping that their country would come along with the Americans and, you know, the path would be rosy. And unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. And during your time on the ground, you sort of alluded to this, but did you sense the tenor of the politics and, and the Iraqi politics changing? So there's an Assassin's Gate moment. Was that the moment that you realized things were about to be different? Or was there another moment? When we were traveling out, we were actually going down to Basra. And there were two vehicles. And they were soft cars. They, they weren't hard cars. And the highway system around Baghdad is pretty huge. And we were going down like we did countless, numerous times. And our lead car, for whatever reason, missed a big turn. And so we had to turn back. And one of the things that you just don't do on highways, and if you have a company, mean, we had, I think it was a Toyota 4Runner SUV, is you sort of backtrack. You don't do that. And we got hit by a remotely detonated IED, improvised explosive device. And lucky for us, the device was broken, if you will. It wasn't put together properly. And instead of blowing up and out, it kind of 
blew sideways. So it literally blew in between our vehicles, which was only about 10, 15 yards. The vehicle behind us was not drivable. Our vehicle just got all the windows knocked out and we got lifted and pushed forward. But the device ended up hitting a car of Iraqis that was in the lane next to us and killed everybody in the car. And so at that point in time, you kind of realize you're like, yeah, things are getting a little bit different. And the frustration level, you could sense the frustration level amongst your friends in Iraq. You could sense your frustration level amongst those that really didn't want us there. That was actually really rising. And I noticed it a lot in the hospitals. I mean, one of the things that I thought was a very bad policy decision, but it was way above my pay grade, is the debathification and then also disbanding the military. I mean, you just, those two things, you're going to unemploy a lot of young military men to do what? And same thing with the debathification. I mean, a lot of these people that worked in these the government offices, they were bathists because they had to to keep their job and support their family. Anyway, so as there wasn't a lot of economic development in the early days, people were looking for other things to do. They got very frustrated. I could go back and almost point to specific events where you just said, all right, yeah, it's tenors changing. It's going to get pretty ugly. So you left Iraq at the 10-month mark and then went and did other government work. But then you you started engaging in these questions from the private sector perspective. And I'd be curious your thoughts on how the private sector approaches these problems relative to how the government would. That's an excellent question. And thank you for asking that, because that's a question I continue to ask myself every time I have been involved in a crisis and disaster response from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina to Iraq to to even the Ebola crisis. I'm either working for the government or in the private sector, but working alongside the government. And I continue to be perplexed as to how and why the government continues to make some of the same mistakes. And, you know, private sector is not perfect, right? But one of the things that I don't think government does well is engage the private sector early enough in a problem or in a crisis. In Iraq, for example, and I could even say this with Ebola, as I said at the, at the beginning, in Iraq, you had private sector individuals, contractors on the ground working, sometimes in the same you know, province as the military was conducting operations, and they were trying to rebuild. And so, you know, it's you just think about just that dynamic was very different than any other war conflict that we've had before. And so they private sector and government have to figure out how to work together. And the private sector has a lot to offer because we are on the ground now. We're so much more globalized. Even in the Ebola crisis, there were a lot of companies on the ground in Africa that said, hey, we're here to help. What do you want us to do? You know, leverage us, use our logistics lines, use our, and the governments just didn't know how to tap them. So I think we have a lot to learn. We should dust off some of our lesson learned reports and actually implement them because there are several. Yep. Yep. The National Defense University published a report called Lessons Encountered. Because it's, there's not necessarily learned, but encountered for sure. I like that. I actually might borrow that. But I guess one question that raises for me, is that in part due to the fact that government has a hard time recognizing when a problem's happening until it's it's reached the crisis point? You know, so for example, there's a lot of discussion right now on the defense industrial base and whether or not, you know, munitions for Ukraine and supplying Ukraine and that sort of thing. It's become a crisis because of Ukraine, but there's so many warning signs and indicators that the way we had been handling industrial policy is probably not going to be sufficient if we 
actually got ourselves involved in a shooting war. So curious as to your views, is it also partly because the government has a hard time recognizing when there's a problem and therefore hard to bring in partners? Or is there something else that's a factor? I think you're definitely onto something. Yes, I do think the government is slow to recognize and then slow to respond. And I think when it does recognize and it wants to respond, I think the government's just gotten too big. There are so many disparate offices that are handling related items, you know, and they don't communicate to each other. And they're all sending signals to the private sector. I mean, a case in point, when COVID hit and we had supply chain choke points and HHS CDC, and then also FEMA were putting out requests to the private sector for masks, for ventilators, for other PPE gear. And, you know, I'll take two companies in particular. One is the world's largest mask producer. And I got a phone call because we were running a global supply chain task force at the time. And they said, could you help us deconflict what the government is asking us? We've got an order from HHS. We have an order from FEMA. We don't know if they're the same order. So I, I honestly think that as the government has tried to, and this is the congressional and executive branch, has tried to add new programs to respond, they yeah. don't take away old programs. So there's a, yeah. there's a lot of conflict. And I just think it's confusing. And by the time they figure it out, you know, the crisis is well underway and we've lost ground. It's almost like the, the hardest thing to kill in Washington, D.C. is an existing program. <laughs> like like it's zombies or vampires or something. Um, they keep coming back. Reflecting on that experience, I would be curious your, your thoughts on your involvement with business executives in national security and how... That community is thinking about the problem sets that the the government is facing today and how what that community would like to hear from or learn from the government. How how could the government be a better partner in addition to being more clear about requirements? It's so funny you're asking that because we just had an executive committee meeting last week. I think I'm losing track of time, but we're creating a blueprint to actually have this conversation because what we've been doing and the outreach we're making to the Department of Defense in particular, we've got a good relationship with. I mean, they task Ben's with a lot of different projects, but even just broadening that outreach a bit to more of the national security sort of agencies writ large and saying, you know, we're here to help and provide best business practices to a problem set. So throw us something. We're trying to figure out how to improve that outreach because I do think we could do a better job of that. And then just taking some of that off the government's plate. I mean, we're, we're actually looking at that, too. It's like, all right, we keep saying, you know, it's the government's fault not doing this. But do they know we're here? <laughs> you know? right. Right. And I mean, we did a report the fall of 2020. It was a commission. The CEO, General Votel, established and it was chaired by the former secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, and the then CEO of Johnson & Johnson, Alex Gorsky. There were 30 of us appointed to the commission, and it was a commission on creating a national response enterprise. So it was basically to try to take lessons learned and say, we haven't learned these. Here's where we could help implement. And part of my frustration is it just seems to be another report that's sitting on a desk and collecting dust. It's like, no, no, no. How do we action this? Like, how do we hold people accountable? I think it's a great question to continue asking ourselves. Yeah. It's just to wrap up our conversation today. As you reflect on your career and the problems that you've tackled and the situations you've had to address from these different perspectives. Do you feel that being a woman has 
influenced how you've approached things? And if so, why? And if not, why not? If you would have asked me this question 15 years ago, I would have said, absolutely not. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. (laughs) You ask me that question today and I say, yeah, 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 you know, how I approach things as a female, I think does continue to influence my decisions, the outcomes and things I'm asked to do. You know, a couple examples. I, I remember I've always been in extraordinarily male-dominated spaces. I was the only female executive across the entire industry of private security, like literally. (laughs) You know, I mean, an industry full of machismo. (laughs) Yes, it is. You know, and, and the one thing that I made certain of is that I wasn't, I I hate to say this, but I wasn't just a check the box. I don't want to be a check the box. I don't want to be there because Oh my God, we have to have a, a woman here. I want to be there because I earned to be there because I bring something different to the table. I had a female boss, man, one of the toughest bosses I've ever had when I was back in politics in Michigan. And she told me, she goes, here's the deal. You want to work in this space? You're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to work longer. And you're just going to, you're going to have to be smarter because you're likely going to be the only female that's walking into the room. Now, thankfully that's changing a lot. But what I will say is having a female around some of these tables of when decisions are being made in the national security space is bringing a diversity of perspective. And so I like to say, look, it's not about checking a box. It's not about, you know, having this category, this category. It's about bringing a diversity of perspective to the table because that's going to ensure you reach a better outcome, which is more likely to succeed. And we can, we, the giant we, that us female, you know, we do bring a different perspective. Like when I was on the ground in in Iraq, a lot of times I was the only female and, you know, and I had to respect the culture and I had to learn that, you know, sometimes you can't walk in front of a shake, right? There were a lot of things that I could do, a lot of conversations I could have that men couldn't. That was extraordinarily eye-opening for me. And there were a lot of things that were happening on the ground that as a female, I just wasn't equipped to do. Like I wasn't equipped to put 500 pounds of rucksack across my back and, you know, and if my comrade in front of me uh, got shot or wounded, I wasn't keep my ruck and then grab my comrade. I couldn't do that. But some of the other things, getting into a small village and having a conversation with a group of women about where their husbands were, you know, that's something different. So I'm a big advocate of making certain that there's always a diversity of perspective race, gender, zip code, religion. Well, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned being on the ground, Ian, that, that because you're a woman, it's not just the perspective that you bring. You're also a trusted interlocutor, right, with other women. And so you get a new source, a fresh source of of essentially intel that, that would not have been factored into the mix otherwise. 100%. And it's just a different conversation. So, yeah, so that was um, that was eye opening to me. You know, people had I had some other female mentors that said, use that because it's going to help you. It is, you know, we we are different than men. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing. And it can be a strength in many cases and most, if not all. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Christy, for your time today and your thoughts and reflections on the war in Iraq, and the role of the private sector in interacting with government. We really appreciate your time today. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I look forward to seeing you again. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. 
This Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. 